The first of my posts to the Facebook group was something I called Reading with Penguin versus Reading with Me. Some of you have commented that it's a struggle for you to connect emotionally with literature and that Read with Me is helping you to do so better. It is no wonder you haven't been taught. Here is a case study in the difference between the approach I take with my students as well as in Read with Me and the conventional approach to teaching literature. I'm currently teaching Frankenstein in eighth grade for the first time ever. Victor Frankenstein's story opens with an atmosphere of grave foreboding as he is found on the ice at sea, all but one of his sled dogs dead, on the brink of death, raving about his pursuit of a demon. His rescuer is Robert Walton, a man on an expedition to the North Pole, with godlike ambitions to explain the path of the stars in the sky and to identify the forces that move the compass needle. Walton has always longed for a friend who can understand and relate to the scope of his ambitions, whose, quote, eyes will reply to his, unquote, and he discovers that he has found this man in Frankenstein. But when Walton begins to lay out his goals, his dreams, and his attitude that, quote, one man's life were but a small price to pay, unquote, for the acquirement of knowledge, Frankenstein begins a haunting cautionary tale about the dangers of a maniacal pursuit of knowledge and a neglect of the humble pleasures of family and nature that make life worthwhile. My students and I have enjoyed thoughtful, animated discussions of Walton's longing for a friend who understands him, of his feelings of godlike power and invincibility, one student drawing a connection to the Icarus myth, and the blissful poetic descriptions of nature that set a stark contrast to the darkness of Frankenstein's laboratory pursuits. Our animating goal is to understand the novel's soul in an effort to expand our own. Here, by contrast, are excerpts from the Penguin Guide to Teaching Frankenstein. 1. Review the patriarchal system and the educational theories of Locke and Rousseau with students prior to reading the novel. 2. Using Inspiration or another multimedia program, ask students to research and produce a one to three minute audio story or podcast introducing the class to one of the following late 18th, early 19th century topics. Galvanism, body snatching, vivisections. 3. Assign partners a mountain, lake, city, or other setting from Frankenstein and have them take the role of travel agent. 4. Show students the two political cartoons on genetic engineering referenced below. One shows President Obama blowing the dust off a science book the day after releasing the moratorium on embryonic stem cell research. The second illustrates a couple making a baby by mixing chemicals in a test tube. 5. Because Frankenstein is an epistolary novel, give students practice in letter writing for the purpose of delineating character. 6. Discuss elements from Frankenstein that parallel characteristics of modern horror tales such as Stephen King's or contemporary films such as Nightmare on Elm Street. These exercises treat this classic novel, 
one that raises timeless questions, provides its own illuminating answers, and expresses those answers in hauntingly, breathtakingly beautiful poetry, as a launching pad for largely unrelated and often politically charged topics. Far from helping the reader to achieve a deep understanding and meaningful connection with the novel, it encourages social media-style flitting from one arbitrary topic to the next. It's tragic, and it is this tragedy that animates my ambition to lead this group. In doing so, I myself have discovered many people whose eyes reply to mine, and I am grateful. The next of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Part 3, Book 6. Though Simordan tries to spare Gauvin the agony of judgment by barring him from the court-martial, Gauvin is summoned by a judge that cannot be eluded, his conscience. Seeing Lantanac, his enemy, perform an act of heroic generosity has left Gauvin at sea. Quote, his most solid resolutions, his firmest promises, his most irrevocable decisions, all these things were tottering in the depths of his will. There are tremblings of the soul. Unquote. He is tortured by the effort to see the light of justice, while the cloud of confusion, contradiction, and uncertainty obscures his vision. The essence of his indecision is this. Quote, he had promised to sever that head. He was going to keep his promise. That was all. But was it the same head? Unquote. Or, quote, should he set the tiger free? And then the question reappeared under its first aspect, and the stone of Sisyphus, which is nothing other than a man's quarrel with himself, rolled down again. Was Lantanac really a tiger? Unquote. We then witness Gauvin's heroic efforts to face the facts openly, to consider them carefully, and to act justly. On the one hand, it seems to him that Lantanac's heroism exonerates him for his crimes. Lantanac had performed the miracle of escaping to freedom and safety, and yet he had, voluntarily, spontaneously, of his own free will, returned. Lantanac had risked everything, endangered everything, placed everything in question for three children who were not his own, not of his family, not even of his caste. To respond to a magnanimous act with a savage one would be to degrade the Republic, and the smile on the face of Lantanac as he ascended the scaffold would bring a blush of shame to the face of revolution. Gauvin could do nothing, complying with Simordan's assertion that the matter doesn't concern him, but, he thinks, abstention is a form of complicity. To send Lantanac to the guillotine would be to wallow in ancient ferocity, and the man of the past would be going forward while the man of the truth went backward. In killing Lantanac, the blood Gauvin shed would be his own, and in maintaining his ferocity, he would be betraying his family. Gauvin feels himself bound to pay homage to the divine law of forgiveness, abnegation, redemption, and self-sacrifice. And he cannot escape the thought that, quote, 
the man who had just illuminated the precipice of civil war by divine action, was not a monster. Lantanac had redeemed all his past barbarities by an act of self-sacrifice. In destroying himself physically, he had saved himself morally. He had made himself innocent again. He had signed his own pardon. Unquote. And yet, because of Lantanac, France was at bay, open, disabled. The ocean was all she had in her favor, but Lantanac was building a bridge and holding out his hand to England. God had helped them to capture the royalist murderer and throw him in a feudal prison where he could no longer do harm. And Gauvin would set him free? In a royalist army with countless arms, Lantanax was the only brain, and without him civil war would be finished. And Gauvin was going to save him? The door of the tomb had closed on the past, on monarchy, and Gauvin was going to unlock it? Were Lantanac freed, he would resume his hideous work and plunge implacable and joyous into the abyss of hatred and war. And besides, wasn't Gauvin exaggerating his magnanimity? It was Lantanac who saved them, but it was Lantanac who had placed them in danger, and Imanus, Lantanac's lieutenant, who had placed them in the fire. Quote, his whole merit lay in not having been a monster to the end. Unquote. Once freed, Lantanac would begin all over again with Vendée, and his life would mean the death of innocent men, women, and children. And Gauvin thinks to himself, quote, Yes, go on, help the English, desert, pass over to the enemy, save Lantanac, and betray France. Unquote. Which of these two abysses is duty? What will Gauvin do? My next post to the Facebook group concerned my favorites from Part 3, Book 6, and this time I'm focusing on what I believe is Hugo's own presentation of his theme. Quote, Above the revolutionary absolute, there is the human absolute. Unquote. In the present time, when political vitriol on all sides seems to me characterized by increasing irreverence for the sacred value of individual human life, this theme is especially dear to me. And according to biographer Graham Robb, for Hugo, 93 was a, quote, showdown with his last great subject, the French Revolution at its most horrific, unquote. The spirit I take from 93 is one of a deeply cautionary reminder that whatever our political goals, we must never lose our connection to all-powerful innocence and to humanity. I don't mean to suggest that Hugo makes a clear and compelling political point. On the contrary, I find the explicit statements of his ideas to be vague and poetic and impossible to translate into meaningful practice. But it is a poetry that touches the soul and awakens feelings of repulsion at suffering, admiration of heroism, and reverence for a very basic feeling of humanity. I have heard it said that Lantanac's transfiguration is unconvincing, that it is too jarringly contradictory with his established character, and I think that may be so. But I admire Hugo's effort to look into a situation that is dark and bloody, 
and a man that is ruthless and inexorable, and to shine a light on the tenderness and compassion he sees buried within. I see him as reminding us that it is this capacity within us that matters most, that whatever truths we hold, respect for the sanctity of innocent human life is the highest truth. And though he does not integrate this truth into a coherent moral or political philosophy, I think all can benefit from the stirring and poignant reminder. Like Lantanac's compassionate act, 93 itself can be regarded as, quote, a useful spectacle, a counsel, a lesson, unquote, where amid, quote, outrages, atrocities, fanaticism, assassination, vengeance blowing on the flames, and death arriving torch in hand, unquote. We, the readers, repeatedly witness, quote, all powerful innocents rise above the enormous legion of crimes, unquote. Were the spirit of 93 widely embraced, a spirit of reverence for a mother's devotion, a peasant's generosity, a soldier's courage, a stern priest's paternal tenderness, and a merciless general's moment of magnanimity, we would still face many unanswered questions about what to do and how to live, but we would be better prepared to answer them. The last of my posts to the Facebook group was a set of quotes that I believe captured the theme of 93. Quote, Gauvin, a Republican, believed himself to be, and actually was, in the Absolute. A superior Absolute had just revealed itself. Above the Revolutionary Absolute, there is the Human Absolute. Unquote. Quote, Gauvin had just seen a miracle, the victory of humanity over man. Unquote. Quote, humanity had vanquished the inhuman. And by what means? In what way? How had it overcome a colossus of anger and hatred? What weapons had it employed? What machine of war? The cradle. Unquote. Quote, the mother's cry had awakened in him that old substratum of human pity, a kind of deposit of universal life which is in all souls, even the most sinister. Hearing that cry, he had reversed his direction. Unquote. And quote, in the presence of the open jaws of civil war, he had affirmed his humanity. He had brought higher truth into a conflict of lower truths. He had proved that above all royalty, above all revolutions, above all earthly matters, there is the immense tenderness of the human soul the protection which the strong owe to the weak, the salvation which those who are saved owe to those who are lost, and the paternity which all old men owe to all children. Unquote. 